word and to open up with me to Paul's letter to the Romans. We'll be in chapter 14 this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 14 this morning. Our sermon is entitled Christian Unity, Love, Liberty, and Lordship. Christian Unity, Love, Liberty, and Lordship. As we continue to walk verse by verse through Paul's epistle to the Romans and our sermon series, God's Righteousness Revealed, we are in chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 specifically this morning. The text reads, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, the one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. Let us heed it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, it will stand forever. As I was preparing the sermon, I couldn't help but think of an old joke that I once heard, so I looked it up. Turns out that the joke was originally made famous by comedian Emo Phillips. He tells it this way. He said, once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump. I said, don't do it. And he said, nobody loves me. And I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, yes. And I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. And then I said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. And I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region Council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said, die, heretic, and pushed him over. (laughs) Well, that joke kind of illustrates what's going on here. The fact that those who bear the name of Christ often lose focus on what's truly important. We forget our common confession and our communion with Christ and our communion with each other, and instead we focus on the minuscule and the relatively unimportant differences that we hold. You and I, we live in a diverse society, getting more diverse every day. With the prominence of various forms of media, most of us feel bombarded by a cacophony of voices, a cacophony of opinions. One telling us that this way is best, Another telling us that we need to be doing this. Still another insisting that we need to absolutely stop doing this other thing or that there will be these tragic consequences. At times it can feel quite overwhelming. It also reveals that you and I live in a terribly fractured society, broken up into various warring tribes, standing upon opposing platforms, under different banners, beating out the rhythms of competing drums. 
And this tribalism, this niche mentality, often infiltrates into the church and characterizes us as well. Instead of embracing the fundamentals and standing together upon our firm foundation, churches fracture and divide into various factions, whether it's within their own walls or splitting off from denominational allegiances and affiliations. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing for some new form of ecumenalism, some lowest common denominator form of Christianity. I don't think that's helpful. You know me, you know that I hold deep and nuanced doctrinal convictions and that I lament doctrinal apathy and ignorance that characterizes so many Christians and the churches to which they belong. Neither am I arguing that all church or denominational splits are unwarranted and unnecessary. When a hallmark doctrine of the church and the teaching of the Bible has been compromised, then it becomes necessary to separate yourself from that church or that group of churches. As R.C. Sproul said, doctrine divides, but it also unifies. What I am arguing, however, is that Christians often themselves argue and divide over things that are unimportant in the big picture. They obviously must seem important to those individuals at that time, but in reality they're not. You've heard the old refrain of churches splitting and people leaving over the color of the carpet. That we're of the brown carpet group and that they're under the gold shag carpet collection. And that these people, they, they want tile and these others are part of the, the hardwood floor faction. Well, Paul has just recently in Romans, back in chapter 12, exhorted the church, let love be genuine. Let it be sincere. Let us love one another with brotherly affection. He calls upon us to owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That we're called to to, to consider other people as more highly than we consider ourselves. What, what Romans 14 is doing then is it's putting those exhortations to love one another into actual practice, in, in actual specific situations. It's about applying that love that we're supposed to have for each other to these specific situations in which two Christians or two groups of Christians genuinely disagree on a matter. In such situations, how are these two brothers or sisters in Christ supposed to treat one another? And I think the answer, as Rupertus Meldentus so eloquently phrased it, you've, if you've never heard of him, you probably have heard this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things charity. That unity is that thing which is essential. Freedom in that which is, is not essential. And then love is the priority that governs all that we do, all that we say, and all that we believe. As we look at these six verses, I originally wanted to, to look at the first 12 because I think they are a unity here, but we're going to kind of do a two-part sort of deal here and look at the first six and then kind of the reason for the first six uh, next week. We're going to look at the first six and, and what I want to do first is I want to, to ask the question, what kind of issues is, does, does this passage apply? The issues to which this, the passage applies as, as we first see we look at the discussion what kind of matters are is Paul discussing we look at verse 1 we're told there it's clear that he is exhorting believers not to quarrel over those things that he calls opinions not to quarrel over opinions he says these are disputable matters as it were so this isn't Firmly established doctrine that we're talking about. The issues at stake are, are not clear commandments 
not transparent and transcendent truth from Scripture. These are not absolutes. This is not sound scriptural revelation that we're talking about. Paul is not contradicting Jude as if we're not to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. The issues at stake are not things like the truth of whether or not Christ was resurrected bodily or not. We're not talking about the deity of Jesus Christ that we're not to contend for. We're not talking about the character and attributes of God. We're not talking about the, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which if you get wrong, you're preaching another gospel. It's not what we're talking about. Neither is Paul excusing some sort of clear commandments and the seriousness of sin and, and disobedience. He's, he's not talking, for instance, about whether or not it's okay to murder someone. You know, I hold that, that it's okay to murder while the other person thinks that that murder is wrong. No, that's not what we're talking about. The, 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 the Bible's clear on those sorts of situations. It's not, it's not, we're not talking about whether it's allowable to worship an idol, whether it's allowable to steal from your boss or your company, whether it's allowable to cheat on your test. He's not exhorting believers concerning an issue like whether it's okay or not to commit fornication. We're not talking about whether it's permissible for same-sex individuals to marry one another. These are, we're talking about issues that are actually debatable, biblically speaking, not things that God's Word is clear about. So when Paul refers to these opinions, then he's talking about the disputable matters, matters that are scripturally unclear. These are areas of, of Christian liberty, areas of Christian conscience, as it were. And it's, it's vital that we understand that this is the things that he's discussing and not the others. Too often Christians make the mistake of treating clear scriptural matters as if they are not explicitly stated or revealed in the Bible. I had a brother who, uh, a brother in Christ, who texted me last night. He was, he's in a specific context and in a specific church, and he, he just asked me. I've, I've been his professor in, in the past, and he, and he said, Is it okay for a woman, a woman to preach? And obviously that's a debated issue today. But, but I told him, the scripture is overwhelmingly and abundantly clear on this matter. That, that God does not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. That she is neither called nor qualified to serve as a pastor or to function as a pastor functions, which is exercising the preaching role in the church. And he, he thanked me. But I, I guess what I'm saying is, that's not something that we're debating. This, this is not, that's not a Romans 14 issue. That's a clear in Scripture issue. And to, to deny that is disobedience. I'm not saying that those people that deny that are, are necessarily unchristian. I'm just saying they're in serious error. And that, that committing that is sin. Now, these are not what we're talking about here. And so, on the other hand, Christians can treat these disputable matters as if they are hard and fast commands from God when they are not. And that is what Paul is actually trying to address. By way of example, Paul gives illustrations of the type of issues that we are talking about. We look at verse 2, if you will, with me. He mentions first saying that one person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now at first glance, we contemporary believers may not really understand what's going on here. We might think that this is merely some debate between Christian omnivores and Christian vegans. But we need to consider the diversity and the class of culture that existed in the first century 
church specifically in the Roman church. We already know that there is a sizable and significant portion of the church there in Rome to whom Paul is originally addressing who were Jewish. And then you add to that a number of Gentile pagans who have now embraced Christ and been added to their number. So you have Jewish Christians and Jewish I mean and, and Gentile pagans who are now both Christians in Christ and in the same church. Well, let me give you an, an illustration. Imagine a Christian Jew in the first century. His name is Saul, for instance. He's walking down the street of ancient Rome. He passes his fellow Gentile Christian. We'll name him Antiochus. He's coming from the opposite direction. They greet one another on the sidewalk. And Antiochus is carrying a bag full of fresh meat. He invites Saul and his family over to their house that evening for a big celebration they're having. They're throwing a barbecue for their daughter's 15th birthday. Saul and his family have nothing going on that evening, but he is hesitant and he might even refuse to come. Or maybe he and his family do come, but they refuse to eat any of the barbecue. Why? What's going on here? Well, Saul, maybe noticing that Antiochus is walking from a direction near where the local butcher shop connected to the local pagan temple is. The meat sold in that shop was previously part of an animal that was sacrificed in that temple as an offering to a false god. Saul is convicted that it would be wrong for him and his family to participate in this barbecue and to eat the meat from that shop because of its previous connection to idolatry, which the Lord clearly forbids. In fact, so that they don't unwittingly participate in this enterprise of idolatry, they have sworn off eating meat altogether and have committed to only eat vegetables since that spares them of accidentally participating in false worship. On the other hand, Antiochus has also turned from his former life of idolatry and the worship of false gods. He doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't make any sacrifices. He despises his former life of idolatry. He's thankful that he now knows the one true and living God. Besides, he knows that those idols, they aren't really anything. The so-called gods and goddesses don't even exist. And that butcher shop sells good meat at cheap prices. It's essentially the only place to obtain meat in the whole area unless you slaughter the animal yourself. So he sees no issue buying and eating the meat from that shop. He does it all the time. Now, both of these men are firmly convinced of their position. Who's in the right? Should they argue about it until they split the entire church over the issue? The second issue we see is in, in verse 5 here. There we find that one person esteems one day as better than another, while the other person esteems all days alike. Again, the issue is almost certainly divided along those Christians who were formerly pagans versus those who were formerly Jewish. In Colossians in chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17, Paul addresses a similar issue. He, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, many Jews who had become Christians, they, they struggled, they still struggled with what was and wasn't appropriate for them now that they have embraced Christianity. Were they still obligated to attend the synagogue and to keep the Saturday Sabbath? 
Did they need to continue to keep the, the feast of booze and the feast of trumpets and the feast of unleavened bread and Passover? What about Purim? What about Hanukkah? Various Christian Jews landed in, in different spots on these issues and their disagreements could become easily become contentious. And sometimes they, they invited Gentiles to, to participate or even convinced them too that it was important for them to, to follow these things. These are the kind of issues that Paul is addressing in Romans 14. And we can easily see how applicable this passage is to our, our own contemporary setting as well. We may not directly deal with these same issues. We, we might, but they're, they're in a different form usually. Christians today deal with a lot of these kinds of things. And often we have strong opinions and deep convictions, and I'll just mention some of them. Now, by mentioning these, I'm not going one way or the other on them. I have my opinions. I have, I have my strong convictions on, on these matters one way or another too. But that's the point of this passage, isn't it? Should Christians go to, to plays, to movies, to concerts, to ballets, to sport, certain sporting events? If so, which ones can they go to? And which ones should they not? What are appropriate and what aren't? Should Christians listen to and play secular music? Should a Christian use alcohol or tobacco in, in any form? Should a Christian dance or play cards? Uh, you probably some of your grandmothers may have may have, have said things like, you know, you, you weren't allowed to, to play any game that had dice or playing cards in it because uh, you know a casino might break out there in the home as you're playing this board game, you know? Should a Christian read fantasy novels with magic and sorcery? What about comic books and superheroes? When I was cleaning out my mom's house in the attic, one of the things I found in the, in the attic was all of my old He-Man stuff. Castle Grayskull, all these figures. They're all dry-rotted. It was awful. I mean, terrible. Infested with all sorts of rodents and stuff. But... But we found it, we, we cleaned it up, we, we saw some of it, you know, it was, it was good to see that old stuff again that I'd played with as, as a kid. And I remember one of my friends that came over, and I remember that his mom would not allow him to play or watch He-Man because they used the term masters of the universe. Now, as a kid, I had no idea what that meant, you know that they were called masters of the universe. But now I can see, okay, Jesus is the only master of the universe. God is the only master of the universe, right? So, but, uh, so they, he wasn't allowed to play that because, you know, it was called masters of the universe. Uh, had other friends that weren't allowed to watch Smurfs, which was popular in my house, uh, because the, the villains in the Smurfs were... Azrael, a cat, and Gargamel, an old man, and apparently those have ties to demonic names. And so they weren't allowed to watch the Smurfs, even though you don't really get that as a kid if you're watching that. But, you know, you might slip into demonism, I guess. Uh, and so people have strong opinions on that. What about wearing makeup wearing trendy or fashionable clothing is that a, is that allowed are women aware allowed to wear feminine pants or must they wear dresses you know these sorts of issues there's all sorts of issues surrounding dress surrounding modesty surrounding uh, for both men and women what is the the proper bible translation for christians to use or or not Issues surrounding the, the proper education of our children and not. Uh, issues around dating and courtship rituals and what's appropriate and not. Can Christians go to the beach? Can Christians host swimming parties? What are the rules there? Can a Christian own a, a big home, a nice car? Is a boat too much? How are they to spend their money? 
where's the line on what what when is living lavish and and how much of their money must be spent towards charity and missions you know when is it when is it suddenly displeasing to god and if you're hearing some of these you you realize that some people have deep convictions one way or the other on these issues and however you may dismiss them in, in derisive laughter, and maybe I did it a little bit, and you may wonder how anyone could have, have an issue with such a, a seemingly silly thing, the, those reactions are precisely why Paul has written Romans 14. Second thing I want to look is not just the issues, the kinds of issues to which the, the passage applies, but the individuals in which the passage addresses. The individuals in which the passage addresses. As we look at the passage, it's very clear that the two people that have one view and another, in this case, are both Christians. They are both called brothers. They are both told what they do. They do in honor of the Lord. They're welcomed by the Lord. If we look at verse 2, we find that the person who has committed uh, to only eating vegetables is called the weak person in this case. This is the brother who back in verse 4 we're told, uh, back in verse 1 is told it is weak in faith. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean by, by, by describing this individual as weak? What, is, what does it mean that they're weak in faith? And I want to acknowledge something that, first of all, that this person who is described as weak in faith, that they actually have the stricter version of the religious practice that is described there as the weaker brother. The brother who is weak, is that he does not fully recognize then the liberty that he possesses as a believer in Christ. He has a sensitive conscience. It's an, an uninformed conscience in this case. And his conscience, however, is pricked to believe certain things are displeasing to God that may not actually be displeasing to God. And what's interesting is that this person that is labeled then the weaker brother has made a law for himself and for others that's more restrictive than the law of God. God has not commanded that believers eat only vegetables. God has never commanded that the believers only eat vegetables. Jesus Himself has declared that all food is clean for us. He told Peter in a dream to rise, to kill, and to eat. But this weaker brother has made a restrictive, a man-made rule against meat-eating to protect then a more serious divine commandment of not committing idolatry. Now, we aren't to commit idolatry, but in, in case he might accidentally commit idolatry, he doesn't eat meat. So he tells himself that only the, sure, the only surefire protection that one can have against committing idolatry is by refusing to consume any meat at all. So these strict rules that he, that he creates, these are what are described as weak, and in this case, immature. And we see that with our own children and the, and the lack of maturity. For, it's, for instance, in our, in our household, and, and probably in your household as, as well, we have a, a strict rule against standing on the furniture. You're not to stand on the furniture. You, you know, kid might fall off the furniture. They might break the furniture. They're, they're just, just not in good form necessarily to stand on the furniture. And to, but at times, if I need to change a light bulb or something like that, I will stand on the furniture in order to do that. We have a household rule that's for the children to protect them, to protect our stuff. But it is, it is, it can be broken, you know, at times when when necessary. We have strict rules against playing with matches, you know, against playing with guns, against playing with knives, and that is to protect everyone involved from 
from death and destruction and all sorts of things. It's, it's, it's simply smart. But yet, those of us who are more mature are able to use knives, are able to use guns, are, are able to, to, to use matches, are able to, to cook on the stove, even with grease. But we have more strict rules in order to protect the house and to protect the kids and to protect everyone. For instance, a, a person who, who struggles, and we see this weakness in a, in a person who has, has maybe struggled with alcoholism in the past or, or, or for whatever, he may need, especially to break this, this cycle, break this habit, may need some very strong rules in his own life and accountability. That he goes nowhere where any kind of alcohol is served. It would be free for another person to to partake in liberty of of some alcohol, not not getting drunk. Yet they would this person needs to to no alcohol whatsoever, no drinking whatsoever, no establishment. They need to make some rules for themselves because they know their own weakness, their own temptation in the matter. Notice that while the one brother is described as the weak person or the weak in the faith, you never see in this passage the other person necessarily described as the one who is strong. It may be implied that they are strong or they have a more mature understanding of Christian liberty, Yet they're not actually described as strong. And I think that that's on on purpose. The stronger brother or the the person who has a more mature understanding has a maturity that he's able to weigh the issue scripturally, to understand it in a nuanced way, to understand and, and to demonstrate real biblical scriptural discernment upon the issue. But they're never described as strong, and I think that's intentional. Because we need this humility. We need this sobriety when we evaluate issues like this. I think that sometimes brothers and sisters who are actually weak in faith pretend that they're strong or think themselves to be strong on an issue when actually they are not. And that they think I can handle this movie and it won't make me more worldly or listening to this music and then it's not going to impact me or lead me into some uh, false ideology, make me more like the world or that I can then drink this or eat this and it's not going to affect me in some way negatively, when in actuality, these things become consuming to them and, and, and shipwreck their life and their faith and they may lose their entire uh, relationship and church and, and all sorts of things over these issues. So I've seen brothers who boast about their, their Christian liberty and that they find that these temptations actually do affect them, impact them, they lead them to actual sin and disobedience to God. That the moderate drinking becomes drunkenness very quickly. That the dealing when they make a decision for money becomes love of money and they pursue money and materialism and are sucked into that lifestyle. So depending on the issue, I think it's also important that depending on the issue, in one issue, we might find ourselves as the person who is the weaker brother, whereas on another issue, we might find ourselves as the more mature understanding. That we're, we're, we're affected by temptations in different ways. We make, we make different rules for ourselves, so to speak, and so that we're... The, the person who is strong on one issue may not be that strong on the other. And the person who is the weaker brother on one thing may not be when it comes to 
something else. They may see liberty in, in different situations. So we need to ask ourselves. We can, we can switch sides, as it were, to, that we find ourselves, whether we're the weaker faith or the stronger, whether we've made a, a man-made rule or not on this issue. And we can switch sides on those things. I want to ask the question, why do we come to these divergent positions on these debatable issues, as it were? And I think, first of all, the answer to that is kind of culturally context considerations. Consider for a moment modesty issues. What modesty looked like 200 years ago and what modesty looks like now are, are two very different things. There were times when if you, did, if you as a woman, showed your ears in public, that was very, or your ankles for that matter, that was very, you know, immodest or even, you know, flirtatious or, or audacious or something like that. Uh, so what modesty for a Christian woman in Victorian England looks different than today or looks different than what modesty in the Amazon basin looks like? What modesty looks like at the beach is different than what modesty looks like at Walmart, despite what people think, you know. Uh, and I'm not saying that everything that is worn in either place are actually modest. I'm just saying what those what modesty looks like in those situations is is different. Being separate, being distinct as as a Christian looks like. We see this with language as as well. What what can be, you know, uh, a word or a hand gesture for that matter that may be considered very rude and very immoral in one cultural context may not be considered that rude or that immoral in another cultural context. It may be, in fact, communicate something precisely the opposite than that. So we may have strong feelings about some things because of our background, because of the cultural context in which we live, in which we've grown up, you know, when you, you think about this with regard to uh, if you wear makeup in some areas of the world, you're going to communicate something that you don't want to communicate as a Christian woman uh, or not, vice versa. It's just, just the reality. We, we believe this or we come to these conclusions also because family rules and traditions, different families have different ways and manners and, and personal rules and traditions that, that they have made. Well, we're, we need to be careful not to elevate these traditions to laws and universal absolutes. And that's one of the things he's saying here. We have strong opinions about this also because of our, our past experiences our past lifestyles, the way that the manner in which God saved us. I have brothers and sisters who were, you know, saved out of, uh, let's say, strong party lifestyles, or, or they were a drummer in a rock and roll band on tour somewhere. And they can't hardly listen to rock and roll anymore. They're convicted about it. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong, personally, with listening to rock and roll. Ma Laurie makes fun of me. She calls it my Satan music, you know. Uh, and some of it's probably inappropriate. That's, that's probably true. But how it affected that brother and sister brought them, brought back all of their past former lifestyles and their, and their sinfulness and how it affects me who, who wasn't ever given to that lifestyle are two different ways. And so the way that we've been, we've, we've been treated in the past or the way, what the Lord has saved us out of, whether it is uh, strict alcoholism or drug abuse culture, that those things can, can affect people in different ways. And we need to be sensitive to those past experiences, what, whatever it is, one way or the other. I, I have brothers and sisters who also came, came out of strong legalistic backgrounds 
where all of these man-made rules were, were heaped on top of them so that this, this yoke of, uh, you know, that it wasn't Christian to do this or to dress this way or to, to, to eat this thing or to drink this or whatever it is. And, and they have appreciated the liberty that they found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the genuine gospel. They've appreciated that very much and they found rest in Him. And they're some of the strongest Christians, brothers and sisters, that, that I know. I think it's important that we see that this so-called stronger brother and so-called weaker brother, that sometimes those that claim to be leaders in the church claim to be the mature, the, the pastors and the elders, actually find themselves on the side of the weaker brother. I, I look at my own self on some issues and my, my, in my past, earlier in my ministry, earlier in my life, I would have called me a compromiser today. And so we see then that there's, I think lastly, where does this come from? I think, there's a misunderstanding of what holiness is and where, from where holiness comes. The work and power of the Spirit. What sanctification looks like. Sanctification looks like not abiding by these man-made standards or laws or rules of conduct. Sanctification looks like conformity to the law of God, the moral law of God. It looks like by the power of the Holy Spirit, increasingly and gradually as we embrace Christ in the power of God's Holy Spirit, that we're following Christ into further and further obedience to fulfill the law of God described in our love for God and each other. The last thing I want to do is look then at what the passage says, the instructions which the passage asserts. The instructions which the passage asserts. The first thing we see is that we're commanded, the one who is weak and fit, we're commanded to welcome him. Welcome him. Embrace him. Welcome him. Consider him a part of your church and your family. Your church family. Why, look down at the end of verse 3. For God has welcomed him. You welcome him because God has welcomed him. We're to welcome each other. Embrace one another. Though we disagree on these disputable matters. Though we come to, to deep and strong convictions about these matters. And we come to different sides on them. We are to welcome one another in the context of the local church and in the worship community. Welcome Him. The second thing that we find here is don't quarrel with each other. It doesn't mean that there's never any place to discuss these issues with each other. But it means as we welcome them, we don't welcome them merely on the condition that we can argue with them about this. That we're constantly bringing this up to them and how they disagree with us about this. And that we're constantly making an issue out of, of whatever it is that we're making an issue out of. Whatever we're debating. That we do not quarrel. We not create this strife and this unity and this constant tension in the church over these issues. That we not quarrel about these things. That these are not to be because they are opinions. We can discuss. There's a place to discuss. There's a place to, to lay out our argument rationally. There's a context in which we can, we can talk about these things. And if you ask my opinion on some of these matters, I'll be glad to tell you what Scripture says and what because Scripture does inform where we fall on, on some of these issues. We need to apply what the do Scripture does clearly say to these issues to understand where the boundaries are, where the lines are in these issues. But we're to, first of all, welcome each other, not to quarrel with one another. And then he says, 
that the one who is stronger uh, need not despise the one who abstains. So that we don't despise or, on the other hand, pass judgment on the other person. The, the person who is mature that understands this is a matter of Christian liberty, this is a disputable matter, the person that, that has strong feelings, they've made a, a man-made rule on this issue, they've, they've got strong convictions, that, that, that the person who sees that as an area of liberty doesn't derisively mock and, and laugh at that person because they feel strongly about it. They don't despise them. Even though they don't hold that opinion, even though they may even think it's silly to themselves, that they don't despise them. They work at loving that brother, at, at being patient with them, at, 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 at helping them gently to inform their conscience on, on the issues. On the other side, we can see that the weaker brother, the person who has a more stricter set in this case, it may pass judgment on the other person. Like I said, my younger self would have passed judgment on my present self as a compromiser to the gospel. And so someone can that that person who is who only eats vegetables in this case is considered they may say a person who eats meat from that shop, how can they even be a Christian? That is that's the kind of 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 a person, you know, who doesn't follow along with canceling this individual or at, has the audacity to do business at this place or who, uh, as a Christian, can one even be a Christian and go to Disney. That, that's what we're talking... This, this is the kind of stuff that we're talking about. And so we, we recognize that they pass judgment upon, upon them and, and, and condemn them. And what the Lord says is that who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. In both cases, when we fail to, to welcome the weaker brother or when we pass judgment upon the, the one that we view as a compromiser who actually has a matter of Christian liberty, when we do that, we are standing in the place of God. And he's saying, stop acting as if you're God on this matter. God has welcomed that one brother, and God will judge His servant on the other one. God is, it's before God that he stands or falls. And he stands or falls on the basis of the Son, Jesus Christ. It's upon Jesus Christ that he stands or falls. And the Lord is able to make him stand. The Lord is able to keep him upright, to keep him persevering, to keep him from falling. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days light. The next thing that we, we're told to do is whatever your position is, be fully convinced in your own mind of that position. If your conscience convicts you that something is right or wrong, then it is right or wrong for you. Okay? It's, it's, it's wrong. If your conscience informed by Scripture is convicts you that something... Don't disobey your conscience. You know, uh, Charles Spurgeon famously smoked cigars. And Charles Major Spurgeon, the prince of pe preachers, you know, famously would, would, would smoke the cigars... And he was once asked, he, it, it separated him, he had another friend. He, he separated from a brother, Joseph Parker, down the street because Joseph Parker went to the theater with his family. But others separated from Spurgeon because he smoked cigars. And Spurgeon was once asked, how much smoking, it, you know, how can you smoke cigars? He said, well, I don't smoke too many. And they asked, well, how many, much is too much? Well, two at a time. That's too much, you know. 
So he, we see that that each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. On another instance, Spurgeon walked up to a group of men who were standing around at, at a race day or something, a, a fox hunt, and, and they, were, they were smoking cigars. And he walked up, and he didn't have a cigar on him, and he said, kind of in passing in jest, how dare you guys have the audacity to, to smoke cigars out here? And a couple of them, in embarrassment, you know, put their cigar out. You know, and that's about the time that he took his out and lit it up. But the point was that they felt that it was wrong in their heart. They felt that, that maybe the pastor or God was displeased with them. And if you think God is displeased with this behavior, then it's, it's wrong for you to do that. You shouldn't disobey your conscience in that regard. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind on these things. And then we find in verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. The point is that they come to different opinions on this matter. One person eats only vegetables and he does it because he wants to, to obey God with all of his heart. And the person who, who eats anything is also thankful to God and honors God with all that he does and he gives glory to God for the meat that God has given to him. And so we see that both of these individuals, while they come to different opinions on this debatable issue, they're both seeking to honor God with their lifestyle. And so whatever you do, do to the glory of God in this case. So we are to be convinced in your, fully in your own mind and to do what you do in, to the glory of God, thanking God for what He has given. We'll look at this more in the next few weeks, but I think this is a good introduction to some of these issues and, and topics here. Um, the call for us to, to submit to the Lordship of Christ, to honor one another in love and and. Um, and also consider the liberty that we have in Christ, that we might be unified as a church together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, O 